G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman and the big question we're going to be looking at today is whether the court has jurisdiction to require a mother against her wishes to authorise a daughter to have personal access to the father. That was probably a bit confusing, let me try to make sense of that. The father in this case has advanced Alzheimer's disease and is almost entirely unable to communicate or perceive his circumstances. The mother is appointed as his guardian and as such she has she has withheld authorization for the daughter to have access to the father. That summarizes the case at its simplest. It's about to get a lot more sticky, tricky and complex. Uh, why are we not surprised? Okay. Given the sensitive nature of the issues, the parties are referred to as the father, the mother, the daughter, and the two brothers. This is the case of EB versus GB, number two, 2022 decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court. The background. The father is 98 years old and has advanced Alzheimer's. He is living in an aged care facility and does not have capacity to make financial or medical decisions for himself anymore. The mother is his appointed guardian. As guardian, she was given the usual powers to decide where the father lives and what medical treatment he receives. The mother and the two brothers are appointed as the father's attorneys, with powers to manage the father's finances. The father moved into the aged care facility three years prior to this case in 2019. The court case we're talking about is actually only the latest in a line of legal proceedings that the daughter has brought against her father, the family and a number of the companies that the family controls. The claims were quite complex and contentious. That's not a word. Contentious. Uh, the claims were quite complex and contentious, not worth getting into here except to say that these previous legal proceedings caused a rift in the family, with the daughter on one side and the rest of the family on the other. Another interesting event that happened before this was that the mother and the two brothers commenced proceedings in NCAT, the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, referred to as NCAT, and they obtained orders that the daughter was incapable of managing her own affairs. The daughter appealed this decision to the court, who confirmed that she was incapable of managing her affairs, and the New South Wales trustee and guardian had been appointed to do that for her. In May 2020, the daughter, through her lawyer, asked to visit her father, kicking off a back-and-forth pen-pal relationship between the solicitors. The daughter's solicitor saying, can I see my father? And the mother's solicitor saying, basically, no. At this time, when this correspondence commenced, the daughter hadn't seen her father in person for about three years, since 2017, and had last spoken to him on the phone about two years before. Nothing odd about that. That was around the time that she had sued him and the family company, so, which makes, you know, having a nice chat a bit tense and difficult. I'm going to paraphrase sections from the letters. I repeat, I will paraphrase. This isn't the exact wording from the letters. That was a bit too legalistic and unclear, so I'm, I'm breaking it down. The daughter requested to visit her father. The mother, through her solicitor, said that she wanted to get medical advice before agreeing to the visit. 
Because the father was extremely hurt by his daughter's actions and was estranged from her before his Alzheimer's advanced, now his cognitive capacity has declined. He can't make the decision for himself. And the mother wanted to find out if a visit would be too stressful for the father. The daughter's solicitor replied on the 15th of June 2020. While we respect the mother's desire to get a medical opinion, without an AVO or a court order, she has no right to prevent the daughter from visiting the father. She then went on to talk about the close and personal relationship she had with her father. In the letter response from the mother's solicitor, once again paraphrased, the special relationship, the close and protective relationship you claim to have with the father, that was all before you commenced legal proceedings against him two years ago. From that time, you insisted that all communications go through lawyers. The father was devastated that his daughter was suing him. Any special relationship ended in March 2018. They attempted to negotiate an agreement but couldn't agree. In July 2020, the daughter, in correspondence to the mother, said, well, there seems to be no legal or medical reason to deny me access. And they eventually agreed to a video conference between the daughter and the father on the condition that an aged care staff member was present during the meeting to monitor the impact on the father and that the meeting would be terminated if the father became distressed. The daughter also wasn't to mention the previous litigations. The first video conference happened on the 20th of August 2020. On the 10th of September, the COO, Chief Operations Officer of the facility, emailed the daughter to state that the father couldn't communicate anymore due to his deteriorating health. He had rare moments of lucidity and was unable to speak or communicate. Despite that, a second video conference was scheduled and happened on the 7th of December. After this, there appears to be a period of about 18 months where no further attempts were made to visit the father again. Jumping forward to May 2022, a relative told the daughter that the father's health wasn't good. The daughter said this made her concerned she would miss the opportunity to say goodbye to her father. She called the facility and was put on the phone with her father. Remember, he cannot speak and according to the daughter, he just let out an, quote, almighty scream, end quote. She had another video conference on the 25th of May. And again, he only made noises. Around the same time, the daughter tried to visit her father in person using a fake name, but she wasn't allowed in. She attempted to visit on the 31st of May, but wasn't allowed in as she could not show proof of vaccination. On the 1st of June, the daughter's solicitor wrote to the mothers seeking permission for the daughter to visit the father in person. She made several requests, and when she didn't get the response she wanted, she started these legal proceedings. The court proceedings. The daughter started legal proceedings against her mother and two brothers in June 2022. She sought orders that would prevent her mother from denying her access to her father in the aged care home and also that her mother pay her legal costs of these legal proceedings. By this time, the mother was living in the same aged care facility as the father, although in a different wing. In the proceedings, the mother put forward the position that as guardian, she had the right to decide who could be permitted to see the father. 
Her position was that she was refusing an in-person visitation, believing that it would be too stressful for the father and cause him to become agitated. However, they would agree to a video conference. They also referred to the daughter's own cognitive impairment and ongoing dependence on cannabis, opiates and benzodiazepines as meaning that she would be incapable of providing care and support to the father. A letter from the mother solicitor, dated October 2020, had stated, quote, The daughter wishes to visit the father, not to provide care and support to him, but to advance her own perceived interests. To date, the daughter has not identified any benefit the father would gain from the visit, end quote. They even claim that prior to the estrangement, the daughter only used the father for money to buy drugs and fund her lifestyle, that she was abusive and disrespectful to him and made relentless demands of him. The father's doctor gave evidence that the father's condition was so deteriorated that he would not be aware of the visit with the daughter. He was unable to recognise anyone and was incapable of verbal communication. The doctor also noted the negative effects these proceedings with the daughter was having on the mother's well-being. She was caused significant stress resulting in two hospitalizations. The COO of the aged care facility gave evidence about the interactions the daughter had had with the father already. Before I get into that, let's admire this high achiever. The COO has a Diploma of Applied Science Nursing, a Bachelor of Health Administration, and a Master's of Public Health degree as well as some legal qualifications. The COO witnessed a video conference and said that the father did not recognise the daughter, he did not respond physically or verbally to her, and there were times when he went to sleep. The daughter would raise her voice and repeat herself, and the COO concluded that the daughter didn't understand or accept her father's condition. The COO concluded that if a visit was permitted and the daughter behaved the same, it is likely the father would become upset and agitated as he is prone to do so with loud noises and stressful situations. The Outcome Justice Robb said, quote, It is something of a tragedy that the daughter's attempt to visit her father in person has led to this impasse and an application for judicial intervention that could never have been the most suitable way to resolve the situation. It is a precept that must attain almost universal acceptance that a parent has a moral right to expect love and support from their children in their final days, where it is possible for that to be given, and that a child has both a moral right and duty to give that love and support in person where that can be done." End quote. So the big question was whether the mother, as the appointed guardian, had authority to deny access to the father. The court noted that the aged care facility appeared to believe that the mother did have this power, which is why the mother had been able to prevent access to date. The court further noted that the enduring guardian document did not expressly include a power to deny access. The New South Wales legislation relating to guardianship does not give the guardian access powers, and the mother would only have that power if the document had included it, or if the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal had given her that power. Lacking that power, 
It was up to the aged care facility to determine when and how a person can access a resident. The guardian has power to make decisions about a personal matter, which includes matters relating to the person's health care and welfare. The solicitors for the mother tried to argue that she could prevent the daughter having access to the father because it affected the father's health and therefore was a personal matter, was a welfare matter. Let's have a quick look at the other jurisdictions because I think you might find the the juxtaposition interesting. In Queensland, uh, the Guardianship and Administration Act authorises the Guardian to do anything in relation to a personal matter that the person could have done for themselves had they had capacity. A personal matter is defined in the Act to include, quote, who may have access, visits to, or other contact with the adult, end quote. In the Northern Territory, in Victoria, it's quite similar. In the Northern Territory, the legislation provides that personal matters includes relationships with other people, including decisions about who may or may not visit. In Victoria, the legislation provides that personal matters includes other persons with whom the appointer associates. In Western Australia, the legislation says that the guardian may decide with whom the represented person is to associate. And in Tasmania, the legislation states that the guardian has the power to restrict visits to a represented person to such extent as may be necessary in his or her best interest, and to prohibit visits by any person if the guardian reasonably believes that they would have an adverse effect on the represented person. The ACT legislation is silent on it, as is New South Wales. So basically in Queensland, Northern Territory, Victoria, Western Australia and Tasmania, the legislation all provides that a guardian has power to decide who can have access and who can visit the the protected person. Tasmania goes a step further by saying, yes, they have this power, but they're to use it as may be necessary in the best interest of the protected person um, and to prevent any adverse effects. So it can't just be willy-nilly just because you don't like the person. It's got to be in the protected person's best interest. So Tassie really um, defines the scope of the power. Because it is not mentioned in the New South Wales legislation, this was taken by the New South Wales Supreme Court to indicate that if a person wants their guardian to have that power, they need to give the guardian that power when they're drafting that document. The court mentioned that the father could have included a power in his document, but he did not do so. I think this isn't quite the full picture. Um, It is very likely the father wasn't given the option to include a special provision around access. And it is also possible a solicitor would not have thought to suggest that, given that up until this case, there was some confusion as to whether the Guardian automatically had this power or not. So if you were already assuming the Guardian had this power, you wouldn't think to suggest including it again. So I think it really wasn't the full picture to say, well, if the father wanted that in there, he would have put it in there. I'd say it's most likely he didn't know that was an option. However, the court found that the parties had been wrong to presume that the mother had the right to decide who could access the father. While she did have authority to make decisions about his health care, 
In this case, the access decision didn't affect the father's health enough to be considered health-related. The Supreme Court noted that the aged care provider, being the owner of the land and property, has rights to decide who is permitted to enter the facility, and as such, they found that personal access to the father was in the remit of the aged care provider. Even if they could make an order allowing the daughter access to the father, such an order would be futile as it could not, based on these legal proceedings, force the aged care provider to allow the daughter onto their property. So what the court was saying there is, even if we made orders saying your mother has to allow you to visit your father, um, they can't order the aged care facility to allow you on their property. So let's have a look at what powers the aged care facility has. Um, as the court noted, it is their property and there is a residential agreement for residential care that residents signed on moving into the facility. This was the basically setting out the legal obligations of the facility and the obligations and responsibilities of the resident. It included a clause on visitors and guests. The clause recognises that any visitors and guests must comply with the aged care facility rules and all reasonable requests from staff. It goes on to say that the facility can refuse entry to any visitor or guest if they fail to comply with all reasonable directions or rules. On reviewing those rules, the only relevant rule I could see was that visitors must follow any directions given by staff. The aged care facility did have an obligation to provide care to the father, and the court noted that those obligations were extensive and complex, and not for determination in this case. Basically saying that if the aged care facility determined it was part of the duty of care for and protection of the father, they could deny the daughter access. Where it came to the detrimental effect a visit might have on the mother's health, the court noted that the mother rarely visits the father due to her own poor health, and a visit could be facilitated without the mother knowing. They also suggested that arrangements could be put in place to monitor the father's response and step in if necessary. One thing the court pointed out was that the mother hadn't tried to argue that the father had ever expressed a wish not to see or speak with his daughter again. It would have been interesting to see if he had and whether this might have affected the outcome of this case. Ultimately, the outcome was that the mother could not deny access, but the aged care facility could if they wanted to. Lessons. There are pros and cons of access powers. There are situations where they are needed to protect a vulnerable person, but they can also be used to control and abuse the vulnerable person. This was recognised by the court in this judgment. They pointed out that older people with a disability, particularly those with dementia, are sometimes isolated at home by those caring for them, cutting the older person off from family, friends and support networks, and giving the carer potentially dangerous control over the older person. On the other hand, it can be a necessary power where an elderly person with dementia is vulnerable to exploitation or influence. 
They gave an example of a guardian who has made the difficult but necessary decision to move the older person into residential care, only for another person to kidnap the older person and take them out of care, where they may not get the medical treatment and care they need. And before you scoff, this does actually happen. I've already um, been involved in several cases where an older person has been removed from healthcare and taken away from family and healthcare supports. It's interesting because isolating someone can be done by hiding them in an aged care facility and preventing access, but it can also be done by removing a person from an aged care facility and hiding them away somewhere else, away from the care they need. So you can see immediately um, access powers can be useful to protect a person, but they can also be used to abuse. The court quoted a Western Australia civil and administrative tribunal decision in which it was said, quote, the decisions that may be made in relation to contact are complex as they may include balancing the needs of the represented person for contact with her family, her cultural needs, the maintenance of her relationships, her wishes, and the need to limit the restrictions on her rights with the need to ensure the proper protection of her health and safety, end quote. The court noted that if the guardian had been given access powers, the court could countermand the guardian's decision not to allow access if they found that it was in the father's best interest. They referred to the general principles set out in the Guardianship Act, which include the welfare and interest of such persons should be given paramount consideration, and the importance of preserving the family relationships and the cultural and linguistic environments of such persons should be recognised. This shouts out two things to me. One, if you want to deny access to a particular person, or at least put that decision in your guardian's hands, you need to include an access power in your appointment of enduring guardian if you are in New South Wales or the ACT, if you will be residing there in your retirement, or if you're in an aged care facility there. Otherwise, you're covered by that other legislation, but in those two states, no. And two, if you do include the power, the court can overrule it if they believe it is in your best interest. This says to me that if you are particularly concerned about a particular person or persons having access to you, you might like to make a written record of your reasons and how you would believe it would not be in your best interest for that person to have access should you lose capacity. And to give you an example, I did have a client, noisy birds, um, to give you an example, I did have a client who did such a statement with me. Um, they had been estranged from their child for over a decade and their concern was that their child would try to reconnect once they lost capacity. So basically, we did do such a statement, setting out the history of the relationship, the nature of the estrangement, the way the son rebuffed any attempts by our client to reconnect, um, and basically included the direction that um, if the child only attempted to re-establish a relationship once our client's mental capacity was diminished, then our client wanted no part of it which was a very interesting thing to, to be involved in. 
That was a little bit of guardianship law for you. I hope you found it interesting and I hope you'll join me for my next episode. <laughs>